If you feel like your business is drowning in inefficiencies, it might be time to decode the problem and break it down by the numbers. Let's start with 37,000. That's the vast community of business owners who've embraced NetSuite. 25, that's the number of years that NetSuite has been revolutionizing financial workflows and accelerating success. Which brings us to one. NetSuite offers tailored solutions, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Unlock the power of NetSuite today. Download our acclaimed KPI checklist for free. Just head to netsuite.com slash cbs. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. Good morning, I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. The remains of former tropical storm Erica are bearing down on southern Florida with heavy rain this morning, exactly 10 years and a day after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans with devastating effect. We'll have more on storms, past and present, in a few minutes. Then it's on to family business, a political partnership between father and a daughter who are not in the least afraid of controversy as we'll see when Lee Cowan pays them a visit. Mm. He's swimming. He's been out of office for years now, and yet Dick Cheney has hardly mellowed with age. You know, if you want to be loved, if you want to be high in the polls, go be a movie actor. If you are criticism-free, then you're probably not doing your job. Nice. Got him. Ahead on Sunday morning, how the former vice president and his daughter Liz are still casting their influence. Cruising in style is the right of summer for the boat owners Connor Knighton has been mixing with. Looking for a vacation destination this summer? How about heading back to another era? When you're out on one of these boats, you're in the time that that boat existed. Ahead on Sunday morning, wooden boats, a class act. As mentioned, we'll be looking this morning at New Orleans, 10 years after its deadly encounter with Hurricane Katrina. The story of its aftermath is one of extremes, as Martha Teichner will be showing us. This was one of the first things I saw when I came into Lakeview for the first time, and there was a mound 10 stories high of debris. Oh my God, it's gone. How could anybody ever clean up the Katrina mess. Ten years later, New Orleans looks like a different place. And this was the front door. But not everywhere. Ahead this Sunday morning, the long road to recovery. Michelle Miller is in the kitchen with New Orleans chef John Besh. Steve Hartman meets a storekeeper trying to turn his Big Easy neighborhood around. Ben Stein has thought about the wild swings on Wall Street. But next, 10 years after. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 10 years now after Hurricane Katrina's assault, the story of New Orleans is very much a tale of two cities. In some parts of town, rebirth and restoration. In other parts, 
few signs of any recovery. Our cover story is reported now by Martha Teichner. As if we needed reminding, even after 10 years, how terrible Katrina really was and what a colossal fiasco. We are gonna die out here if they do not see somebody out here right now. The horror show at the Superdome. Close to 25,000 people were trapped there for days in the heat and stink. We need to feed our babies. We need to give our babies some water. Somebody rescue Thousands more baked on overpasses along the interstate. This man jumped to his death because he just couldn't take it no more. More than 1,800 people died across the Gulf Coast. How could this be happening in the United States of America? Who seemed more out of touch, President Bush or FEMA Director Mike Brown? And Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin let loose on a radio broadcast. Now get off your asses and let's do something. And let's fix the biggest damn crisis in the history of this country. 80% of New Orleans was flooded. Billions and billions of gallons of water swept over the city. Not so much because of the storm itself, but because the levees gave way. The flood walls broke. Being there in those first months, it felt like, am I witnessing the death of a great American city? Gary Rivlin covered Katrina for the New York Times. His new book, Katrina After the Flood, has just been published by CBS-owned Simon & Schuster. People talk about Katrina being an equal opportunity storm. It didn't make a difference if you were black or white, rich or poor, but it wasn't exactly an equal storm. If you were a black homeowner, you were more than three times more likely to have lost your home in the flooding than if you were a white homeowner. And just like it wasn't an equal opportunity storm, it has not been an equal opportunity recovery. This was one of the first things I saw when I came into Lakeview for the first time, and there was a mound 10 stories high of debris. And I just remember pulling to the side, stunned, and I just began to weep. Connie Udo's house, a few blocks away, looked like this after Katrina. When the water finally drained away, what had been her middle-class, overwhelmingly white neighborhood looked like this. We were fortunate because my home is triplex. Because we lived on the second and third floor, we didn't lose everything. After moving six times, Udo, her husband, and two children dared to go home. In January 2006, four months after the storm. It was a very sad place to be. As long as I was in my house, I was okay. When I walked outside, I would feel myself just kind of slide. And got to the point where I told my husband, I don't think I can do this. And so he said, you know, I think you have to find a purpose. A few months later, the former tennis teacher had become a combination Angie's List and Mr. Clean, a whirlwind running the St. Paul's Homecoming Center. Her job, connecting people to resources, marshalling volunteers, to get her Lakeview neighbors back in their houses. I realized we were in, in a fight for our life to save our neighborhood, to save our city. How did you go about this assault on yeah. the storm? Do, do not wait for the government. That became our motto. People would say, well, I'm gonna wait for this. I'm gonna wait for my 
the government's going to do this, right? I was like, no, I don't think so. The government didn't even show up when we were stranded at the dome for five days. Why do you think they're going to show up to help gut our schools and churches and businesses? And why do you think that? We need to do this. This was one of our success stories, actually. And they did, Connie Udo's organization and others. There are reminders of Katrina. The high water line is immortalized at Starbucks. But Lakeview is back. A supermarket opened in 2010. The St. Paul's Homecoming Center has moved on. In New Orleans, happy or sad, you dance to the music. And yesterday, on the actual anniversary of Katrina, people danced in the Lower Ninth Ward, where the most damage was done. This is what it looks like, still. Almost entirely African-American before the storm, only 37% of its pre-Katrina residents have returned. Brad Pitt's Make It Right and other charities have built hundreds of homes, but thousands were destroyed. The closest thing to a grocery store opened last year. More on that later. And this was the front door. Someone else's roof was on top of Betty Bell's house when the retired social worker finally was allowed back for a look a month after Katrina. The city demolished it. You know, I just try to be strong and not let it really affect me too much because I don't want to run my blood sugar up. Her insurance settlement, nowhere nearly enough to rebuild. The bank took most of it to pay off her mortgage anyway. This was the bathroom. Construction is about to start on Betty Bell's lot, but it's taken 10 years of fighting and the intervention of a local advocacy group to get her barely enough money for a house one-third the size of her old one. It's not what I had, but, you know, at least I'm getting something. And it took a long time to get to this, to this point. For Bell, the problem was road home. Louisiana's nearly $10 billion federally funded program intended to bridge the gap to provide homeowners enough money to rebuild. For many, many Katrina victims, it ended up a bureaucratic nightmare, a symbol of incompetence. But for residents of African-American neighborhoods, such as the Lower Ninth Ward, it was a symbol of something else, discrimination. Road Home based its payment formula on the value of a property before Katrina. In New Orleans, historically, homes in African-American neighborhoods have been valued significantly lower than similar homes in white neighborhoods. Never mind that construction costs are the same regardless. It was just a fundamental flaw in the program. In fact, it's not just me saying that. A federal judge ended up concluding that the road home program did, in fact, discriminate against black homeowners. It's not that they were not made aware that it was not a good policy. Uh, myself and others personally uh, appealed to the powers to be to not use that policy. One of the city's most prominent African-American leaders 
Alden McDonald heads Liberty Bank and Trust Company. After Katrina, his headquarters, his branches, and his own home were all devastated. But he managed to keep the bank open. We're Louisiana made, Louisiana proud at Liberty Bank. And has, in the past 10 years, built it into one of the largest minority-owned banks in the United States. But this speaks volumes. The Liberty Bank building in African-American New Orleans East, marooned, surrounded by what was a million-square-foot mall before Katrina. When I take a look at what happened and what didn't happen, you could see that the ability of money uh, helped communities to rebuild faster and bigger and to do things that perhaps the African-American community with less wealth was not able to do. We're ready. Nearly 10 years after Katrina, we're no longer recovering. We're not rebuilding. Now we're creating. The current mayor, Mitch Landrieu, likes to talk about a new New Orleans. All you have to do is look around. The Superdome rebuilt. A new state-of-the-art hospital. New schools. A new $14.5 billion flood protection system reduces, it doesn't eliminate, the risk of catastrophic flooding. The tourists have returned, but nearly 100,000 African-American New Orleanians, gone. The new New Orleans looks familiar, but may never quite be the Big Easy again. Only in New Orleans. Ahead, cleaning up. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac, August 30th, 1901, 114 years ago today, the day a British inventor truly cleaned up. Hubert Cecil Booth's huge horse-drawn vacuum swept earlier cleaning machines aside by perfecting the use of suction to remove a carpet's grit and grime. Smaller vacuum cleaners soon followed, as did competitive manufacturers, each making its own distinct claim, as in this British TV ad from the 1950s. It floats. The Hoover Constellation floats on air, floats on its own cushion of air, floats with you through housework. And the full stable of vacuum cleaners through the ages was on view when our own Bill Geist dropped in on the 15th annual convention of the Vacuum Cleaner Collectors Club back in 2002. It's a clean hobby. Club president Charlie Watrous assured Bill that, contrary to what others might think, vacuum cleaner collectors are just normal, everyday people. We have everyone from doctors, executive secretaries, uh, we have airline personnel, beauticians, uh, we have everything. And they all shared a fascination with the technology that would have made Hubert Cecil Booth proud. The mechanics of how the vacuum works, the fan going around, the brush roll going around, the belt, if you notice, his foot is over the starting line. After several rounds of competitive vacuuming, 
the collectors raised their voices in song. And it lifts, 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 it bestows a precious gift, and your carpets become a pristine clean, clean, clean. So much for that old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. Next, all decked out. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Cruising in style is a great way of passing the time if you're in a place enjoying some calm waters this Sunday. With Connor Knighton, we're casting off. It's a classic sight and sound of summer. A mahogany-clad motorboat, sleek and powerful, cutting across a pristine lake. An ambassador of a bygone era. For fans of these elegant craft, it's not about getting from point A to point B. There's a material difference. Your boat is out on the lake, and the lake is surrounded by woods. There are no fiberglass trees. <laughs> you don't see a lot of fiberglass trees. And no. so, really, your wood boat your woody speedboat has permission from the lake to be there. Matt Smith runs WoodyBoater.com, a website devoted to the joys of classic wooden boats. They're beautiful. They're absolutely stunning. It is really like a Steinway, you know, it's a grand piano on the water. A grand piano that can skim the water at speeds of up to 40 miles an hour. They've got the beach side bar that's open here. Across the country, enthusiasts gather at shows to marvel at these wooden works of art that flourished in American waters from the 1920s to the 50s. Thanks for sharing the boat, brother. Hey, no problem. Thanks, guys. It's awesome. But to the boating faithful, this annual gathering in Algonac, Michigan is more of a pilgrimage. These are the waters that your powerboat wants to be on, in its heart, in its DNA, <laughs> in every turn of the propeller, it wants to be here. This is the spot. That's because more than a hundred years ago, America's powerboating industry was largely born here. When one of its founding fathers, Christopher Columbus Smith, yes, that is his real name, combined boats and engines with mass production. His company, eventually named Chris Craft, quickly became synonymous with fast-paced fun in the sun. So in its heyday, how big was Chris Craft? Put it in terms today, I would say it was like the General Motors of the boating industry. Pete Beauregard owns the Algonac Harbor Club on the site of the original Chris Craft plant. So if Detroit is Motor City, is Algonac Motorboat City? That's what we call it. Our famous slogan is where it all began. Uh, Algonac to the boating industry is what Henry Ford and Dearborn were to the car industry. With Detroit just 50 miles away, Chris Craft borrowed more than assembly line inspiration from the car industry. It occasionally borrowed parts. This boat has a Ford Mustang steering wheel and horn ring with just the Chris Craft emblem in the center. Oh, right, because Ford was just right down the street. Right down the street, absolutely. But in the 1960s, fiberglass became fashionable. And it brought boatloads of new competitors. To keep up, Chris Craft eventually stopped making wooden boats altogether. So, 
How fast did this old tub go anyway? A vintage Chris Craft boat got the star treatment in the 1981 film On Golden Pond. Suddenly, there was a renewed interest in getting these beautiful old tubs back out on the water. This boat here came in, we took the bottom off, and we started replacing frames. Wayne Eversole and his team spend countless hours sanding, fastening, and varnishing these old boats back to life. It's that gorgeous sheen, he says, that can be most elusive. Everything has got to be right in the world to get a good varnish job. Your mother-in-law has to be in a good mood. The moon's got to be humidity, heat, dust. Um, you could have a bad varnish job, and who knows why. Eventually, a boat can go from looking like this to something like this. A craft capable of transporting passengers back to another era. you're out on one of these boats, you're in the time that that boat existed. You are inheriting at that moment all the history that that boat lived. It lives in the wood. It comes out. It, you feel it. Sunday morning goes to the dogs. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. National Dog Day was celebrated last Wednesday by dog lovers across the land. Reason enough for us to celebrate that apparently lots of dogs are Sunday morning fans, too. chunk of my savings disappeared as the stock market convulsed and we're down at some points by well over 10%. Next, what's going on here? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. So what to make of the recent white-knuckle gyrations on Wall Street? Our contributor Ben Stein has thoughts on that. August is the cruelest month. A good chunk of my savings disappeared as the stock market convulsed and we're down at some points by well over 10%. Why did it happen? The pundits and analysts appeared and said it was because of the Chinese devaluation and possible serious weakness in China. This, in turn, would devastate U.S. exports supposedly to China and sink the ship of our prosperity. That was and is nonsense. The U.S. economy's output is roughly $18.4 trillion per year. Total exports to China are very roughly $120 billion per year. That's a lot of hamburgers. 
but it's roughly only about seven-tenths of one percent of the U.S. economy. If our exports to China fell by 20 percent, a large number, that would have only trifling effects on the U.S. economy, very roughly one-tenth of one percent of U.S. output, trivial even for an economy as big as ours. But at some moments, the U.S. stock markets are off by more than a stupendous $2 trillion. Why? This is a CBS News special report. I'm Nora O'Donnell in New York. Wall Street has just opened for business and stocks are plunging again. When the stock markets move 1,000 points in a few minutes, it's not because you and I are selling 1,000 shares of GE from our home computer. It is because immense hedge funds, high-frequency trading funds, endowments, and pension funds sell billions of dollars worth at the push of a button. They do it because they personally and their clients can possibly make immense sums of money on it. Stocks move on markets because the big boys in New York or Hong Kong or London say to their traders, boys and girls, let's move this guy down. Start some rumors about weakness in China and then sell like mad. Then the markets start to go down, everyone else piles on, and the markets keep going down until some other pit boss says, kids, let's move this whale up, buy like crazy, and I'll call the guys at CNBC and tell them we have data about strong new orders for widgets in Shanghai. Then the whole thing goes on in that direction for a while, up. There's a famous quote, in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. In the long run, the market gives us minnows, the chance to swim with the tide and get in on the growth machine that is the U.S. economy. In the short run, it's a terrifying playground for the tough guys to rumble in. And yes, some big guys win and some lose. But it's powerful human beings with an eye on the almighty dollar and a fast trigger finger, not bogus macroeconomic explanations that move markets in a huge way. In the meantime, stay cool. Patience will be profit and fear will be loss. Wow. Nice. So look, beautiful gold shrimp. Love it. Just ahead, Chef John Fish's recipe for recovery. Oh, this is good. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. New Orleans was famous for its great food long before Hurricane Katrina. Here's President Obama enjoying fried chicken at Willie Mays Restaurant on Thursday. Great food is a tradition that Chef John Besh is determined to maintain. Ten years ago, he opened his heart and soul to the storm's hungry victims. More recently, he opened his kitchen to our Michelle Miller. New Orleans has its own flavor. And I think part of that flavor is the soul that really goes into it. Chef John Besh knows something about the soul of New Orleans. The food of New Orleans is the only indigenous urban cuisine left. You come to our city, you open up any menu, you know exactly where you're at. How long for the fried oyster? I was sitting there trying to count the number of restaurants like in my head. What number is this one? So we have 10 here in New Orleans. 10? Mm-hmm. The Besh Restaurant Group employs over a thousand people. Besh himself is a fixture on television and has written four cookbooks, including his latest, Besh Big Easy. Everything that we do here, like, should take us back to our childhood. So we have, like, with every cookie plate comes, you know, comes the cookie batter. Thick. We met up with him at his newest venture, the just-opened bakery and cafe, Willa Jean. 
This is really special because I had always hoped that I'd have one restaurant. I wanted to be a chef. I wanted to be a New Orleans chef. The 47-year-old Besh could almost see New Orleans from Slidell, Louisiana, where he grew up as one of six kids of a stay-at-home mom and airline pilot father. My father was paralyzed at a really young age, and I was nine years old, and uh, he was hit by a drunk driver, paralyzed for life. At that point, I started cooking breakfast for my siblings, and I wasn't the smart ones. We got smart ones, and I was just like the dumb one that liked making breakfast and serving the kids, and so that kind of became my job. I loved to cook. And he kept cooking, developing his own unique take on time-honored recipes. Beautiful gold shrimp. Love it. I would always do like riffs on like my mom's shrimp creole, you know, and I would add a little something or I'd add that and I would make it my own. Need a little hot sauce. And then when I had a chance to finally stand out on my own, I wanted to honor some of those great dishes that I've had in the past. And so just trying to bring a little refinement to them. And that's pretty much all I do still today. Mmm. Oh, it smells so good. Before his culinary career took off, Besh joined the Marines, where he served in Iraq during Operation Desert Storm. That was a time that I got to mature a lot. And at a young age, learning how to deal with people that don't look like you, don't talk like you, that really helped me a lot in like, growing as a chef. He returned home to start a family and work his way up the New Orleans food scene, eventually becoming the executive chef and owner of August Restaurant. Life was good, but something was missing. I did fall into the trap of being that selfish chef, just focused on you know building this great place. It was Katrina that really brought me back to my roots of, no, we have to live now and really serve other people, and that's what it really comes down to. This is an unprecedented moment for New Orleans. A catastrophe is on its way, and a half million people here are moving out. When the storm hit, he shut his restaurant down and left with his family, only to return to a devastated city. And then I get here and I see the fires and I see the smoke and I see the water and you see people in such despair. And I just remember at this one point thinking, God has put me here for a reason. I have resources, I have a talent. What am I going to do to help? What he could do was cook. We just started cooking. We'd cook red beans and rice around the clock, and either myself or some of my Marine friends would ride around just scooping and serving these red beans to people. And when he wasn't cooking, he was reaching out. So this neighborhood was just totally flooded, destroyed. We're talking about six to eight, I think 12 feet of water just down the street. The Tremaine neighborhood was in bad shape, including the fabled fried chicken place, Willie Mae's Scotch House. It was in danger of closing forever. So Chef Besh set out to help save it. Whoever was gonna come and help out rebuilding Willie Mae's Scotch House, we were gonna feed them for free. And so all these volunteers, we would feed. They were determined and failure was not an option. Carrie Stewart runs the family-owned Willie Mae's, which was founded by her great-grandmother. I cried many a days in the store. You know, if I just had a moment, I'd just go back there. And I'd be like, whew. <laughs> you know? Easy. After the storm, these places became cornerstones that people in an act of defiance would come and eat out in in order to show their resilience for de defeating all this adversity. 
In the 10 years since Katrina, Besh has not only grown his own empire, but he's continued his work in the community. If we're going to sustain the culture, then we have to make sure that we invest in its people. So here I am, I've, I've become pretty famous just from cooking New Orleans food, right? But we all have to share in that. We all have to have opportunities to participate in that. So he started the John Besh Foundation, which gives loans and scholarships to local people. The only requirement being that they give back to New Orleans in turn. So I think if nothing else, what's really come out of this whole, of the tragedy of the storm in, is we started with a blank slate and we haven't gotten everything right and it won't be done tomorrow. And I, I think that if I can use food to shape a better tomorrow for New Orleans, then that's what I'm supposed to do. Ahead. This is a pretty harsh criticism of a sitting president. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it is a necessary criticism, I think, is the way we both feel about it. The Cheneys, father and daughter. But first... There was nothing, nothing in the entire area. One store at a time. <laughs> Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Martha Teichner gave us a look earlier at the small grocery store that's serving people of a struggling New Orleans neighborhood. Steve Hartman takes us back now for a closer look. This part of the Lower Ninth Ward was once a thriving neighborhood. There was a house right there, another there, and another there. But like the porch steps that now remain, the last 10 years have led nowhere. It's been 10 years, and that's just too long. But there is hope, and his name is Brunel Kotlin. I'm just an average guy with above-average dreams, and my dream was to make my neighborhood look like the rest of the city. Burnell was the first to rebuild on his block, but about a year ago, he did something braver still. Right in the center of this desolate landscape, he took an old apartment building, tore off the roof, and hung a new shingle. Now open. What's going on, sir? This is the Lower Ninth Ward Market, the only business of any kind in the immediate neighborhood. There was nothing, nothing in the entire area. Not even his mother, Lily, thought it was a smart idea. There wasn't even a good street light out there. But Brunel felt like he had no choice. The large box stores said they're not coming back because there's not enough people. And the people that want to come back say they're not coming back because there's no stores. What came first, the chicken and eggs? Somebody still have to do something. How much does this cost you? cost me everything. It cost me my entire life savings. Burnell had saved $80,000, mostly from a 10-year stint in the Army. He and his wife, Keisha, were hoping to retire on that money. Hey, how you doing? He may never make it back. Real good. But he still smiles like a rich man. You could have went anywhere, but you came here. <laughs> in addition to the groceries, the market also serves as a gathering place. Kids come after school. Burnell's mom serves them snowball treats. This place has become the heartbeat of the neighborhood. And for that reason, Brunel says he has no regrets. In fact, he wants to add a laundromat, maybe even a skating rink. The guy has become a one-man planning board. I'm going to keep on going. <laughs> I'm not going to let nothing, nobody stop me. Certainly, if hell and high water didn't, he's not going to let a few weeds get in his way. I'm going to do it. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. No need to ask former Vice President Dick Cheney or his daughter Liz what the nature of their family business might be. It's politics, of course. Politics of a famously outspoken sort. Lee Cowan met with them on their own home ground. We caught up with the former vice president in one of his favorite spots, drifting down the south fork of the Snake River in Idaho. Mm. Swimming in. Fly rod in hand, matching wits with the trout. Nice. Got What'd you get? Cutthroat. No matter what other worries or problems you may have or dealing with, you really focus on what you're doing and, and put all your other cares aside. They, they don't count as much when you're out here. Not too long ago, this kind of retirement for Dick Cheney, not far from his home in scenic Jackson Hole, Wyoming, looked pretty iffy. His failing heart used to get almost as many headlines as he did. But in 2012, this grandfather of seven got a heart transplant. And suddenly, everything changed. I just uh, was back in for my three-year checkup. Um, it's nothing short of miraculous. At 74, he's regained the look of his days in office, reminders of which popped up again last month with the release of these previously unseen photos. They were taken on September 11th, 2001, showing Mr. Cheney first dealing with the crisis in the White House bunker, then being whisked away to that now famous undisclosed location. It was, uh, you know, a, a remarkable day, a tragic day in terms of uh, the loss of life and the, the extraordinary set of circumstances we had to face with. And a day that shaped one of the most controversial vice presidencies in history. How did that day change you personally? Not from a policy standpoint, but what changed you? Well, I... Um, it's been alleged by some of my friends um, you know, that 9-11 did change Cheney, that when he was a Secretary of Defense in the first Bush administration, he was a warm, pleasant, lovable fellow, and he became more of a hard rock uh, afterwards. And I think that's probably true. Um, it changed, um, well, it changed the way I looked at the world. The way he looks at the world is pretty well known by now. Dick Cheney is unapologetically hawkish. The rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. He was an early critic of the Obama administration's national security policies, especially the troop withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan. The mindset is hard for me to understand. I think we have to recognize that it's a dangerous world, that it's more dangerous than it has been before, and that those threats out there we're faced with are increasing while we strip ourselves of the ability to deal with it. Mr. Cheney is renewing his criticism of Mr. Obama with the help of his daughter, Liz, a former State Department official and one-time Senate candidate. In their upcoming book, Exceptional, published by Simon & Schuster, division of CBS, they accuse Mr. Obama of retreating from the world's problems, diminishing America's power as the threat of terrorism rises. This is a pretty harsh criticism of a sitting president. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it is a necessary criticism, I think, is the way we both feel about it. That, you know, it's not an attack on him as a person, uh, but it's very much sort of um, uh, raising the alarm about the policies. Take, for instance, their criticism of the president's recent nuclear deal with Iran. With this deal, 
we cut off every single one of Iran's pathways to a nuclear program. You say of the deal that the Obama agreement will, one, lead to a nuclear-armed Iran, two, a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, and three, the first use of a nuclear weapon since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's a pretty daunting prediction. I, I think it, we say it may well lead to the first use of a nuclear weapon since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the reality, as my dad has described, is that this deal makes war more, not less likely. Think about what kind of a regime it is. They've violated virtually every agreement they've ever been a party to. I don't think they can be trusted. I think they've demonstrated that repeatedly. The book is an expanded version of an op-ed the Cheneys wrote for the Wall Street Journal last year, where they laid out an argument that many of the GOP presidential hopefuls are now campaigning on. That the rise of the Islamic State is Mr. Obama's fault. Barack Obama became president and he abandoned Iraq. ISIS was created because of the void that we left. Are you really laying the spread of ISIS at the president's feet? I think the spread of ISIS uh, was a direct result of the vacuum that was created when uh, the Obama administration withdrew all forces from, uh, from Iraq. We turned our backs on Iraq. We had Iraq in good shape. By the time we left office, even Obama said as much. Initially, it was President Bush who agreed to a troop withdrawal deadline, although he did so reluctantly. Iraq's Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki, had objected to the idea of any U.S. troops staying beyond 2011. Well, you talk about the problem being that there was no stay-behind force, mm -hmm. that some would argue that the real problem was that we went into Iraq in the first place. Well, I'm well known as somebody who strongly defended that. I thought it was the right thing to do, and I still believe that. It wouldn't change anything? No. Indeed, there was a widespread support at the time, and it was justified. That support was based largely on the administration's argument that Iraq possessed weapons of vast destruction, an argument that later proved to be wrong. That false premise became a key issue in Mr. Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. Does the president get any credit for trying, while still recognizing the sacrifice that was made, trying to end the two wars that have gone on even longer than you thought they would go on. Does he get any credit for trying to end that? Well, um, I gave him credit, for example, when they got Osama bin Laden, I think. But uh, you don't end a war. If you, if you end a war just by walking away from it, that's victory for the other side. Some of his fellow Republicans, however, are uneasy with the intelligence policies the Cheneys want the next president to bring back, including the enhanced interrogation techniques that a Senate panel deemed torture. First of all, it wasn't torture. The, the waterboarding, for example, torture, that was the most egregious thing we did, supposedly, in the enhanced interrogation program. It was the most significant source of intelligence for us that we absolutely had to have, and that was on Al-Qaeda, how big they were, where they were, who their leaders were, what their plans were, and so forth. All, all of that came out of enhanced interrogation. What do you say those to say, yes, perhaps they worked, but we sacrificed our values in the process? Well, first of all, I don't believe we sacrificed our values. I think the, the number one responsibility of senior public officials is to safeguard the nation. Nearly seven years out of office, Mr. Cheney remains a man not eager to make either apologies or skirt controversy. You know, if, if you just, nothing but um, warmth and friendliness and so forth, uh, seriously can't deal with the kinds of issues that uh, I've had to deal with over the years and that I wanted to deal with. It's almost, I think, uh, if you're, you are criticism-free, then you're probably not doing your job. For his daughter, that unyielding nature is one of the most appealing things about him. 
I know of no one who has been more courageous and, and dedicated and honorable than my dad in terms of being willing to say, this is absolutely what we have to do. This is the right thing to do. You know, and sometimes when nobody else was willing to do it. You know, I know for all of us who love you, the, um, the, the gratitude as Americans that we feel is, is matched only by our love for him. Don't look at me like that. Well, no, thank you. <laughs> His matter-of-fact veneer almost cracked there for a moment. What do you think is the most surprising thing about your dad that folks don't know? that the um, hitch cover on his pickup truck is Darth Vader. It is not, is it really? <laughs> it is. Uh, I, I don't know who put it on. I haven't found out yet. But, uh... We checked, and yes, on the back of his black F-350 pickup, it's there. The symbol of the villainous dark side that even became a bit for Jon Stewart's final show. I am more machine than man. But it has come to my attention you have been comparing me to Dick Cheney. That seems a bit harsh. So it's a point of pride in some ways for you. Well, in a sense, you have to have a sense of humor about the business. Dad, this is a nice rod. Yeah, it is. It's, I just bought it last year. These guides back on the Snake River often say that Mr. Cheney picks the hardest fish to catch in the toughest conditions. The more challenging, the better. His approach to politics seems just as targeted. And whatever you think of Dick Cheney, he's clearly not ready to hang out the gun fishing zone for good. What do you want your legacy to be? Oh, I don't know. I think I'll let the historians worry about that. Feel like I, uh, I did the best I could under extraordinary circumstances, and I'm satisfied with that. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then. I'll see you on the radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.